Hello there. Hello there. Uh, so welcome, welcome to the Print Street Review. We have some really fun news today. Um, CJ. I'm CJ. <laughs> well, that is. I'm really going to push for this intro. Yeah, I mean, it's not happening, is it? <laughs> that is Skylar. Um, and welcome to the Pin- Print Street Print Review. Street Review. Um, so <laughs> back to what I was saying. We have some really good news today. Uh, CJ isn't actually doing an entire podcast by herself this time. Uh, me, Skylar, <laughs> Skylar, um, Bippity Boopity will be mm-hmm. doing this. They know podcast. your last name. Yeah, I just don't want to like put my last name out there. But it's already done. Has it? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. be fair, right? <laughs> if I said that I didn't spend last night making a story because I didn't trust you, I would be lying. That is really mean and that hurts my feelings. Mm. But here we are with 3,740 words worth of a lovely story. Skylar definitely... Went above and beyond. Not only did she go above and beyond, but she also surpassed my expectations. More than that... That's a very big compliment. I've done a lot of work. Very minimal reward right now. So, you know... (laughs) I actually have a really fun idea for next week, and it doesn't include me doing as much work either. But I think it's going to be cool... And it's spooky season, and we haven't done anything spooky season related. And well, spooky season is my favorite season. So, well, I can do some spooky bits. Are we doing this together? What's the deal? Well, see, this is the thing. We could start doing one story each each week mm-hmm. and turn this into a two hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or we could post two episodes per week. And y'all can just pick the one you like the most. And, and we'll, I'm sure there'll be favoritism. There always is. Um, just as a side note, I'm ethnic. Take from that what you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're playing that. Okay. <laughs> yes. So um, we could, I mean, yeah, because we would record the same, like we could just record them back to back, but post them separately. Two episodes per week. One Skylar centric, one CJ centric. I mean, may the best story win. And to be honest, discussion to have, yeah. <laughs> not on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is, these yeah. are admin things that you probably don't give a fuck about. Seven and Jeffs. Seven um, Jeffs. Thank you for returning to our podcast. I love that. I'm very excited for Skylar's story, and I w- I'm very excited for her to let me know what the fuck's going on. All right. So, to I don't really think we're carrying on from last week, but to like stick to the. To the spacey theme is what we are going to be doing. Have you ever heard of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster? The only time I ever heard of it was when you vaguely mentioned it a week ago and (laughs) I said, hey, buddy, you should do that for the podcast. Exactly. And this is why I (laughs) thought I'd be like, well, I said to you today, you'll have an inkling of what it is because I love this. I love this shit. It is so fascinating, but it is very tragic. So I don't want anyone to think that I'm not taking this seriously. But um, it is very good. I the find stoicness it, is just rolling off of you. Uh, I find it really interesting. So shall we get started? I'm excited. Just fucking do this. Also, uh, we're having mushroom stroganoff after this. So like, be jealous. All right, move mm. on. Let's go. Okay. Come on, get to it. I'm just drinking your dirty dog. All right. So the space shuttle Challenger disaster was a fatal incident in the United States space program that occurred on January 28th, 1986, when the space shuttle broke apart seven and three seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members on board. Seven seconds into its flight. Seventy-three really? seconds. Into Seventy. Its- oh, I thought you said 
seven, seven seconds. Seven whole seconds. It's like, where the fuck did it go? It didn't really get very far, did it? Like, <laughs> literally just one, like, little centimeter off the ground and then just pff, toppled sideways and murdered everybody. I mean, no, it's very, very intense. And um, to be fair, there is a lot of technical shit in this podcast, so I may skip through some bits. No, nope, you're not allowed to skip it. I'm going to ask a lot of technical questions oh, that you need to have an answer for. I love that. You really make things simple, don't you? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the You crew, chose a technical story. I eat my left labia. So oh. the crew consisted of five NASA <laughs> astronauts and two payload specialists. So I think like payload specialists are just people that aren't astronauts. They go on to like they go on to space missions, right? Well, uh, wouldn't a payload specialist be in charge of the cargo? No, because like well, that's, a pa- that's like a payload is like what you're carrying with you, right? Wait, exactly, but that that is what I thought. But no, it's it's um, I think it's like people that aren't like trained astronauts. So for example, I would, I'll get into it, but like one of uh, this this flight is is famous for mainly for its crew. The people that were on its crew was very unique. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the 10th flight for the Challenger orbiter. Uh, the Challenger had flown nine <laughs> times before over the previous nine years and helped the United States reach several important milestones. Maybe they should have built another one. <laughs> this is clearly <laughs> shit. they're pushing it, you know? It's like once your car gets to, like, 400K, you're like, you are now responsible for anything that happens. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of... To me, but it was ridiculous. Not, not the people who died... NASA. Oh, not God, them. Yeah. I'm not saying they and are the responsible con- for dying, but I'm saying NASA was really pushing it. Like- and, the, and the contractors could have done better. Mm. Um, anyway, so yeah, the shuttle uh, the shuttle brought the first woman and African American to space, hosted the first space lab, and enabled the first astronaut run satellite repair. I don't know what that means. Um, but an astronaut sick. went and repaired a satellite. Probably, yeah. That sounds um, like the most logical thing. If mm. you are an astro engineer, I think um, it's just aeronautical engineer, wouldn't it be? Don't give a fuck. If you're one of those things, um, <laughs> one of those. feel free to find a way to contact us because there's not really any clear way yet. Mm. Um, we're not really across the social mediums publicly, privately, very much so. Mm. But Fill us in on your Fill um, us in on your expertise, expertise. because we all know Skylar's going to fuck it up. Most let's likely. Be, I don't honest. know what any of this thing, this stuff means. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, it was the 10th and ultimately ill-fated launch from Kennedy Space Center in Florida that was by far the challenges most anticipated, in large partly thanks to the unique nature of the crew that was making the journey, which I have just said before. Mm-hmm. So we're going to quickly jump into into the crew. I have a fair bit of information here on them, mm-hmm. but I don't want to make it because there is a lot to get through here. It's a very well, isn't technically the most important part of this story are the people who died, right? Yes, but also I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of information on uh, on the its initial launch and ascent, and then the, it breaking apart because it didn't actually explode; it broke apart, and then the recovery of said, and then aftermath. So there's a lot mm-hmm. to get through. Don't skip anything. I want to hear about the people. I'm, I am absolutely going to hit all the people. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the crew consisted of. Krista McAuliffe, so she is the, probably the most well-known. Krista? Krista McAuliffe. Yep. Um, so she was a teacher from New Hampshire, um, and she was the first. She was supposed to be the first like civilian to fly into space. Uh, she earned the spot. <laughs> Wife civilians shouldn't fly into space. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like kind of bad luck, though. Hey, we should um, just send Richard Manson up. Is, is it Richard Man? Is that the guy, the Virgin dude? Not Virgin, as in he's never had sex. The airline man. Rich. Uh, Richard. 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 I know you're talking about. Yeah, him. He really wants to go to space. Of course he fucking Shoot does. him up. Don't send a school teacher. She has or a basic skill that we Musk need. Or like, shoot a fucking Tesla into space with a dummy in it. That's a vibe. He did that. Remember? I wish Elon Musk was in the Tesla <laughs> when he got shot up there. Because that man 
not my favorite. Not your vibe. All anyway, right. we can move on. Fair crack of the whip. So she earned the spot uh, on the shuttle by winning the teacher in space program. So, <laughs> oh my god! Yep. What? Yep. So the, it was supposed to be they wanted to make space flight look like it could be a normal thing for everybody. It wasn't just for professionals. It wasn't just for astronauts. It was for, in the future, it would be just like a way of travel for everyone, right? But so, you can't be an astronaut if you're colorblind, right? We don't need to... Literally, no, 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 right? They're going to put restrictions on being an astronaut, like you can't do it if you're colorblind. But, but you don't need to, but you hold... don't need to, like, you don't need to be the one, like, to have the technical knowledge. Like, you, this, this one was just a teacher that was going to go on there and teach people what it was like to be in space and blah, blah, blah. So she was just a passenger. She was a passenger. Okay. And, like, the whole point of her was she was going to, I think she was going to be filmed, uh, you know, teaching kids, like, around, like, America and probably, obviously, around the globe, I, I would assume, mm-hmm. what it's like to be out in space, what they do, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was all supposed to be, like, an educational thing. And I'm pretty sure... I had read up on another little article that it took them ages to pick what kind of person they wanted, like doctors and artists and fucking all sorts, but they decided that a teacher would be the best bet. And I agree. I think teachers are like the most important profession in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're awesome. So mm-hmm. yeah, so that was, that was, that was that little project teacher in space. Uh, so uh, it was a contest <laughs> that was launched by president Ronald, Ronald Reagan and NASA oh, received. Fuck yep. me. Of course it was Reagan. <laughs> oh, how on brand for that fucking scumbag. <laughs> it received over 11,000 applicants uh, the field was whittled down to 10 finalists and, McCall- and McCulloch was like the person that was ultimately going to be chosen after medical tests and evaluations and all sorts of fun stuff. She wasn't colorblind. Can you get off the fact that I'm colorblind? It hurts my feelings. <laughs> Just fun fact. That's a vibe. And CJ won't. I have up. literally nothing against the fact that you're colorblind, but I just don't want you to forget the discrimination that you have to face <laughs> on a daily basis. It's just a minor inconvenience. Anyway, <laughs> shut your whore. Do you now. remember when they did the competition, like the video competition for like mm-hmm. the 10 people who were going to go to Mars and like procreate? I would totally not vibe that. No, right? Sounds terrible. I don't want to be a baby. But people machine. had to send in like video submissions. Mm, what? I feel like I need to check up on what's going on with that because that was a thing. Anyway, please continue. Oh, my God. Anyway, so lovely Krista. She was a 37-year-old mother of two at the time. Uh, She was a social studies and English teacher and had 15 years of experience in the classroom. Uh, She instantly became an overnight celebrity and the focus of extensive media attention, as did her family and students at Concord High School. What year was this? Uh, 1986. This year. Damn, Gina. So the next person was Ellison Onizuka, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, he was supposed to be very good-natured and very popular. He was the first ever Asian-American and person of Japanese descent to travel into space. Fuck yeah, um, buddy. Yes, like many of his fellow Challenger astronauts, he was a trained engineer who served in the armed forces during the 70s, uh, serving as a test pilot throughout the decade. How so, old was he? I uh, didn't actually get their ages. I didn't go through and get all their ages. It's all but, G. Mm, you got um, old mates, Krista. You said I she was 37, Chris's. didn't you? Yeah, I didn't get through all of them. I think I just don't have that, you know, my attention to detail isn't spot on at the moment. Look, it's all G. Yeah. It's okay. I'm, I'm all right with it. <sighs> he good. sounds fun. He was, a, he was apparently a nice bloke. The next guy is Ronald <laughs> Nobody's McNair. Nobody's going to be like, oh, remember that dude that fucking blew up in the... Didn't blow up thing? and fell apart. Fell apart in anyway. the fucking big rocket thing. <laughs> oh, asshole. All right. So Absolutely we'll... fucking hate it. Stop trying to move on when I'm speaking. Fucking... <laughs> 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 Asshole. Are you done? 
Well, what I mean is nobody's going to say that. So I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I'm also saying that, like, like you just don't see people on the news being like, oh, they were a terrible fucking neighbour and I hated them when they're reporting on someone who's dead. This is true. You have no idea what they were actually like. They're exactly. Probably, they could As have all been a pain in the lift. If you are just reading for the entire podcast because you're trying to get through it, <sighs> this isn't going to be much of a podcast. No, I'm just saying you need to get these informations in. Um, so I think in total there were like seven as well. So the next guy is Ronald McNair. Um, he, nice name. I know, it is very nice. Uh, so he was supposed to become the second African-American to reach space. McNair earned his they PhD. They were getting all the minorities. I know. <laughs> Definitely a PR. <laughs> Definitely a, a PR uh, trip if I ever heard of I like it, Dad. Nice work, NASA. <laughs> so he earned his PhD in physics from MIT and just Fuck a few me. years later. I know, legend. Like, these Daddy, people were in absolutely Jesus. incredible, right? So a few years later, he it was invited to join the class of 78 at NASA. No black person had ever flown into space at that point. Uh, I think two had been chosen from the astronaut training program. One was selected to join NASA. No, one wasn't selected to join NASA, and the other one was invited to become an astronaut, but he died during a test flight. So he was like the backup. Mm, no, I feel he was like invited I got to join the class of seventy-eight. The they had at that point when he had joined, there, there, there wasn't, there hadn't been a black or African American person in space yet. So who was the dude who died? Uh, I, there was no name of it, of it. I couldn't try and find. I couldn't find the dude. Who but it was. what happened? Sorry, can you repeat so that? So one, so one, one. There were two. I zoned out. I'm sorry. So there, there had been two that were chosen for the astronaut pro- training program in the '60s. Right. One wasn't chosen, and then one was invited to right. join the program, but he died during a test flight. Oh, so there had been sad. two prior to him. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. The Onwards. next one was Judith Resnick, who was like, by the way fucking hot oh really insanely like i highly recommend googling she was beautiful um so she was 28 when she was asked to join nasa this chick's insanely impressive um and she was in part of the the 1978 class and she scored a perfect like 1600 on the sat i don't know what that really means i don't know let's go with um a high distinction uh she attended carnegie carnegie mellon what for her (laughs) undergraduate and then earned a PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Maryland. Carnegie was- Mellon. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't get 1600 on the SAT in Carnegie Mellon? <laughs> Don't know what the standards are down there. Get it, Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> so she was apparently so impressive that she joined NASA only five years after receiving her doctorate and then spent the next five years training to be an astronaut and working on space projects. So she's a fucking weapon, basically. It only takes five years to study to be an astronaut. Well, no, I just think she was in exceptionally awesome. And by study, I mean training. Yeah, interesting. Okay, good. Very continue. interesting. So the next guy is Dick Scobie. So he was the commander of the of the Challenger. Mm. Um, he had a supposedly a very remarkable career in both the Air Force and NASA. He served in Vietnam, flying Ooh. combat missions. What did you say his name was? Sorry, Dick Scobie. Dick Scobie. Dick Scobie. I like his name. It's such a vibe. I feel like he would have gotten some flack in primary school. <laughs> <laughs> Dick. Too close to Dick and Scobie. <laughs> So he yeah fought in Vietnam, flying combat missions for three years, and then he returned to the United States and was a test pilot through the 1970s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. the next bloke is so so far we've got a teacher, an so engineer. Keep Krista is a very big deal. She was a very big focus because she's a civilian, right? Because she's so a civilian. That so was like the record breaking situation. That, that was a huge thing. So we got right. Krista. We have Ellison. The uh, Astrophysicist the, dude, right? The, or engineer, he, sorry. Engineer. He was the first Japanese 
to yep. every person Japanese descent in space. We have Ronald McNair, an African American second man in space. Judith Resnick, he's just a fucking gun, the total fucking weapon, and yep. then we have Dick Scobie, right, the commander of the Challenger at the time. Okay, right. There were the whereas we got two left. Okay, two so we left. Got, we got Gregory Jarvis. Mm-hmm. So he was that's the, a good name. I know I like his name, and he was so adorable. You should look at pictures of him. Oh my god. Uh, so he was the only other crew member who didn't have uh, traditional astronaut training. He was an engineer who wound up on the Challenger just by being a boss, basically. <laughs> uh, he spent his whole career in and out of aeronautics, beginning with his uh, beginning with joining the Air Force during Vietnam and working in the Space Division with a specialty in satellites. Um, oh. After his discharge, he began to work for Hughes Aircraft, a major military and NASA contractor, and eventually worked on space-related crafts. After nearly a decade of working for Hughes, he applied for and beat out 600 other engineers at the company for the opportunity to work on a NASA space shuttle. Damn. So he just... Is he, he he worked his way like literally all the way up? He hustled his way onto a space shuttle. Yeah. Fuck yeah, exactly. So I have a chance. Mm. What I'm hearing. So then we have the last guy, <laughs> Michael over J. From Smith. Career in music. Keep Michael J. Smith in mind because there's some like really unfortunate, gruesome info about him like later, which is like oh. upsetting. Oh, so, about him as a person or no, about the way he died? About the way he died. Oof. Like keep him in mind because it's really fucked. Okay. So he was a Vietnam vet and joined NASA at the turn of the decade. Uh, he wound up piloting the Challenger after nearly two years of being shortlisted for shuttle flights. Um, and in 1984, he was assigned to pilot the space shuttle Atlantis, um, its second flight in November of 85. And he nearly replaced the pilot who wound up flying an earlier Challenger mission, which was supposed to be on January 1985, a year before Challenger's fatal flight in 86. Okay. So the the flight before the 80 yeah so there was six, a flight was in 85 two years before oh, one year there before was, yeah one year before okay. so we have michael j smith we have gregory jarvis dick scobie judith resnick ronald mcnair ellison on izuka and we have krista mccullough and what was the destination of the challenger like where were they supposed to be going oh they're supposed to be fucking off into space i assume right. oh, they were supposed um, to be like anywhere you know, in particular they're supposed to be yeeting around space <laughs> is that is that from the articles themselves that look say man that? it's just what i'm assuming okay <laughs> okay so uh this flight it had a lot of it had a lot of delays oh it had a lot of delays wonder why had a lot fucking delays and the thing is that really annoys me about this i feel like there were a lot of things and it's everyone is going to agree with this there could there are just so many things that could have happened to prevent this from fucking going on you know i actually i studied chernobyl for year 12 in extension english right because we were doing um after the bomb and the cold war um so in extension english yeah i did a creative writing story from the perspective of the guy who was who told the Chernobyl staff that something was wrong, yeah. and then the dude obviously, you know, it was it was a similar situation where wasn't there like that asshole? There was supposed to be the asshole. There was one that- guy who kind of took the fall, but the reason why it ended up being such a big problem, like it, it, there were. It was very, like, a lot... Nothing like this had ever happened before. People mm. didn't really understand what they were playing with when it came to nuclear energy. And so there is one dude who was specifically in charge of the plant who was an absolute asshole and didn't believe the fact that there were problems and th- yeah. that there was an issue with the test and all this kind of stuff. And so proceeded as normal and caused the deaths of however many fucking tens of thousands of people. Um, 
But there was also like the government didn't like, you know, evacuate properly and all this kind of stuff because they just didn't believe it was happening. But I think it's a similar thing. And I think it's a story that happens quite often that because people either there's a lot of money invested, there's PR involved, it's a big like media story or whatever it is, they feel like as though they either have to rush it, cut corners, nothing can go wrong, everybody feels pressured and all that kind of stuff. And so things slip through the cracks and and people die. Absolutely. And that is definitely what's happened here. I'll get to it, but there is a conference call with the um, the contractors with Thiokol mm. and they pretty much tell them, they, they say, no, don't do this flight. And NASA is all like, yeah, nah, yeah, nah, yeah, nah. Okay, so we have the delays, right? Mm-hmm. So it was originally set to launch from Kennedy Space Center in Florida um, at 2.42 on a Wednesday on January 22nd, 1986. Um, the delays in the previous mission caused the launch date to be moved to January 23rd and then to the 24th. Um, it was then rescheduled again for Saturday, the January 25th due to bad weather um, uh, at the Transoceanic Abort Landing Site in Dakar, Senegal. Mm. Interesting. NASA decided to use the TAL site at Casablanca, Morocco, but because it was not equipped for night landings, the launch had to be moved to the morning. So there's fucking heaps of delays already. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also predictions of unacceptable weather at Kennedy Space Center, which we'll elaborate on a bit later. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily the most interesting thing, but I think you do need to kind of know about it's it. pertinent. To... Yes. Um, so that was, uh, to, that was to cause the, the launch to be rescheduled again for Monday the 27th. Um, and then the planned January 27th launch was then delayed due to problems with the exterior access hatch. So if you've actually seen, you can see pictures of it, like, I don't understand why that you've got problems with the actual hatch on this thing. And you're just like, yeah, we're just going to yeet them into space anyway. So the literally like the door. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first, apparently a micro switch indicator malfunctioned. I don't know what that means. Uh, but its purpose was to verify that the orbiter's hatch was safety, safely locked. Then a stripped bolt prevented the closeout crew from removing a closing fixture from the hatch. By the time repair uh, personnel had sawed off the fixture, crosswinds at the shuttle landing facility exceeded the limits for a return to launch site abort. Uh, while the crew waited for the winds to die down, the launch window expired, forcing yet another scrub. So they're just like a little list of fucking heaps of little delays. So things Which to are me, just to me, going wrong. To me, like, I don't know if I'm just really superstitious, but that would just be like absolutely not bad juju. Very well, all juju. these people would have signed contracts and they wouldn't be able to just pull out. Like, yeah. The, especially once you work in the military. But like also, NASA is a military yeah, organization. Yeah, but also there are people's lives at stake, you know? Doesn't like, matter. These are, these are... Doesn't matter. Literally, literally in the military, there are people's lives at stake. That's what you sign up for, right? Be- mm. Going in on a space shuttle and going up into space is a very dangerous thing oh, to God, do. Oh, God, yeah. But and also so they you're are knowing up. they're putting them in a situation where they know that they're, they're – it gets – like I get into it a bit later, but it does – there are so many examples of things that they just like, you know, it's it's not an acceptable no, 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 no. I agree with that. Yeah. No, I agree with that. But – I think that even if, like, because I'm also a superstitious person, right? How many times mm. have we watched me knock wood? <laughs> All of the times. So if if I saw something and it freaked me the fuck out, I don't, like, you just wouldn't be able to not decide that you don't oh, want to Oh, God, fly. no, God, no, obviously. That's what I was talking about. No, I, just, I mean, the people who are fucking up and seeing the bad things and trying to ignore them, no, that's oh God, not yeah. right. Oh, no, no, that's like, not right. For me, I think, like, I'd be like, oh, weird, delays, weird. Like, I don't know, just me, I'd be like, get me off this fucking shuttle it's not happening like i would just freak out you know worst 
bad juju vibes. You could probably get kicked off if you act like a little bit insane. I would say. I reckon I would at some point. Yeah. But then again, how would I, if I were one of these people, how would I possibly know this is about to happen, right? Well, like, yeah, I'm that's the thing. Know, like, because do you reckon you... any of them had like a bad feeling like in their court? You know, I some mean, people. Pro- I would say that th- probably. I Not mean, like... during the flight. I mean, like the night before or like leading up to it. Like, they, do you reckon they would have had like a bad feeling? I reckon so because it's like a, as I said, like I think that space travel is very dangerous, and there's so Fucking literally terrifying. everything is acting against you being up there. It's mm. kind of like just being on the fucking ocean, right? Like if you're in the middle of the ocean, everything is working against you being there because you're not supposed to be there. Humans aren't supposed to be in the middle of fuck, but fuck nowhere. And so instead mm. of doing it, you know, that way, we've done it vertically. Mm. And like when you're in space, everything's working against you. It's very, very dangerous. And so I personally like maybe it's just because I'm an anxious person. You're an anxious person, but <laughs> like generally really scared. You maybe. like there are so many things that could go wrong. But I also think that the type of person who becomes an astronaut would be the type of person who, Can whilst they would that, feel that, you kind of just push through it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we would be select. I would not be a very good astronaut. I wouldn't I'm want like a, to be a fucking astronaut. To be fair, I'm like a nervous whippet. That's my vibe. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to continue on, right? So this is this it, leading into that, you know. So uh, so there was a fire call, NASA conference call, and, you know, they were kind of voicing all their concerns, right? So just a little background. Fire call was an American corporation that was concerned initially with, like, rubber and related chemicals. And then it, uh, it later turned to, like, rocket and missile propulsion systems because that's just what you do, right? Interesting. Yeah. Very it's, clear-cut transition. Though. I know. Very. So, apparently, for, so forecast for January 28th predicted a really cold morning with temperatures close to minus one degree or 30 degrees Fahrenheit, if that's Damn. how you roll. Uh, the minimum temp permitted for launch, so minus one degree is, like, minimum, mini, mm-hmm. mini, mini. Um, the shuttle was never certified to operate in temperatures that low. The the O-rings, as well as many other critical components, had no test data to support any expectation of, of a successful launch in in those kind of conditions. Righto. So a little from what I gather, like O-rings are little like like a squircle circle, little things mm-hmm. that like form like a seal in the um in the little what do you call it? Little launchy boys mm-hmm. on the side of the shuttle. Are you getting one? I, I do. I am. Is everyone else? Is everyone <laughs> Fuck, I'm not an engineer. Yeah, well. <laughs> so by mid-1985, fire call engineers worried that others did not share their concerns about the low temp effects on the boosters. Um, Bob Ebeling, which is apparently a big uh, a big character a big player in, story, in the Yeah, yeah so in he the was game. an engineer. And then in October of 1985, he wrote a memo titled Help so mm-hmm. that others would read it. Um, and it showed concerns regarding low temperatures and O-rings. Um, after the weather forecast, NASA personnel remembered Thiokol's warnings and contacted the company. When a Thiokol manager asked Ebeling about the possibility of a launch at uh, minus 8 degrees, he answered, we're only qualified for four, 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees. So it's 4 degrees, not minus fucking 8. So it's um, way colder. Way colder than, than what they It needs to be for to, yeah. the machinery to work, which Apparently. makes sense because, like, Obviously. think about even when you're, like, driving and you try and start an engine mm, in winter. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't. It's not having to buy it. So imagine on a space shuttle. Yeah, a much um, more delicate um, um, machinery mm, going on there. Exactly. So he's saying, you know, what business does anyone even um, have thinking about 18 degrees? We're in no man's land. Uh, so after his team agreed that a launch risk disaster, Thiokol immediately called NASA recommending a postponement until temperatures rose in the afternoon. 
Right, so Thiokol are kind of the good guys in this yeah, situation. Yeah, they are. They are. But the thing is, they they um, they bitch out and like bend to NASA's kind of will when they should have stuck to their guns. And I think if they did, this probably wouldn't have happened. So there are a lot right. of factors that come into play here, where these people could have this disaster could have been prevented. Yeah. But because obviously the deadlines, fucking millions of dollars, you know, they don't want to keep pushing it back, pushing it back, pushing it back. It's wasting time. It's wasting money. Yeah. So NASA manager Judd Lovingood Ooh. responded that Thiokol could not make the recommendation without providing a safe temperature. So the company prepared for a teleconference two hours later during which it would have to justify a no-launch recommendation. So they have, like, no leg to stand on. They just know that it's not, it's not good juju, but they don't have the data to support what they're claiming. So NASA's like, fuck yeah. Fuck your chicken strips. Wait, but they've said that it's too cold. So that data they have, but they haven't provided the hell, yeah. what temperature it would be okay to yeah, launch at, right? Yeah, but that's so, because the thrusters aren't functioning properly yeah. because they're too cold at the moment. Exactly. And so because NASA wants them to just go ahead with the faulty thrusters, which are too low of a temperature already, and that's not the, the thrust- information not, that they like, have. They're not faulty, but they... They can't function and they don't function well in weather like that. And NASA's like, well, you're not really giving us a temperature that they can. So fuck off, basically. So at the teleconference on the evening of January 27th, I call engineers and managers discuss the weather conditions with NASA managers from Kennedy Space Center and Marshall Space Flight Center. Several engineers reiterated their concerns about the effect of low temperatures on the resilience of the rubber O-rings that seal the joints of the SRBs and recommended a launch postponement. So they're the SRBs rocket boosters. Yeah. If you're not going to listen to the engineers, who the fuck are you going to listen to? Yeah, well, they're all about, like, getting it done and, you know, fucking Americans. America! America! So they argue that they didn't have enough data to determine whether the joints would properly seal if the O-rings were colder than 12 degrees or 54 degrees Fahrenheit. (gasps) (laughs) For those in the fucking shit places that use whatever that system's called. Doesn't make sense. Um, so this was an important consideration since the SRB O-rings had been designated as a criticality one component, meaning that there was no backup if both the primary and secondary O-rings failed and their failure could destroy the orbiter and kill its crew. Oofed. Yes. So Thiokol management initially supports its engineers' recommendation to postpone the launch, but NASA staff oppose the delay because they've had fucking heaps already. Uh, NASA claimed that it did. Yeah, but it's did. fucking like, dude, it's space it's travel. It's space travel. Exactly. Like, it's Na- NASA literally, the one job of NASA is space travel. You'd think that they've done it, it that many times, they'd be used to some delays. I reckon it's literally just because of the PR oh God, surrounding yeah. the trip with the teacher. Absolutely. Because, yeah. Because they've made a huge, like you said, she was a celebrity. They've made a huge fucking deal about it. Yeah, but And the they're trying to promote the, space travel for civilians. And you would think that they would take the time to make that, like, a, a safe thing. But instead, it's fucking horrendous so nasa claimed that it didn't know of cycles earlier concerns about the effects of the cold on the o-rings and did not understand that bullshit exactly and that they didn't understand that rockwell international the shuttle's prime contractor additionally viewed the large amount of ice present on the pad as a constraint as a constraint to launch sorry so they've been told by like thiokol and rockwell international to two contractors that fucking no no and they're like oh we didn't know that because they're assholes Ugh. Exactly. So the Thiokol engineers had also argued that the low overnight temperatures of minus 8 degrees projected on the day prior to launch would almost certainly result in SRB temperatures below their red line of 4 degrees. Ice had accumulated all over the launch pad, raising oh concerns God. that ice could damage the shuttle upon liftoff. 
So we're getting annoyed, right? It's <laughs> like, oh my god, it's absolutely ridiculous. But it's it happens constantly. They like yes, okay, they do care about the fact that if these people die, right? They do, but at the same time, they're like, it doesn't matter. We need to make money we need to push ahead like obviously they don't want them to die because if they die it's a terrible pr disaster it's a bad vibe right but they don't actually care about their lives because otherwise they would be doing everything possible Mm. to try and make it a safe trip exactly and then the whole the whole thing here you know the teacher space program this whole thing is to show that you know civilians can go and travel space flights safe oh my god you would think you would be so careful you honestly this is so dumb this is not fucking idiotic i know wow. Is, wow, wow, wow 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 yes it is fucking ridiculous so we're gonna take it from those little wee delays in that conference school we're gonna go to lift off in the initial ascent oh right? god so this is where shit gets technical because i don't actually understand how to say half of it it's oh great. nice good stuff so if anyone's a aeronautical engineer fill us in okay so <laughs> the space shuttle main engines <laughs> ssmes Oh. We're ignited at T minus 6.6 seconds. Mm-hmm. We're getting very technical here, guys. Oof, yeah, we are. Yes, the SMEs were liquid-fueled and could be safely shut down and the launch aborted if necessary until the solar rocket boost is ignited at T equals zero, which was at 11.38 Eastern Standard Time, and the hold-down bolts were released with explosives freeing the vehicle from the pad. Okay, so the rocket launched, yes? Giggity-giggity, basically. Okay. So you and I can just interpret this shit together. Yep. I'm here uh, for you. Yes. So later review of launch films show that at T plus 0.678 seconds, I assume, yep. uh, strong puffs of dark grey smoke were emitted from the right hand oh SRB near the rear strut that attached the booster to the ET. Oh. So basically there's puffs of shit at the wee bottom. Okay. The last puff of smoke occurred at about T plus 2.733 seconds. Uh, and the last view of smoke around the uh, strut was at giggity giggity, no one cares. Right. It was later determined that these smoke puffs were caused by the opening and closing of the rear field joint of the right hand solid rocket booster. Uh, repeat that for me, sorry. I don't even know. Just repeat it. Puffs of smoke. It was later determined that these smoke puffs were caused by the opening and closing of the rear field joint of the right SRB. Okay. So there's a piece that's clearly not functioning it's properly. It's not. It's not doing. Maybe well. it's an Australian thing, but black smoke, right? Usually means no good. <laughs> <laughs> black- Do not proceed. <laughs> it was it, apparently um, back here. It actually says uh, dark grey. So it was dark grey smoke. So the booster's well, casing. Well, I stand corrected. All mm. clear. Full steam ahead, please. But it, I would. It would be interesting to know, right? At what point in the launch process is there like no turning back? So, like, are they now at this point, now that they've been pushed by NASA to just fucking go ahead? It does kind of get to that point, which I, it, it does, I, there is a little note here. Because, sure, like, yeah, it. it's like an airplane. Like, once you're at a certain fucking situation, you're you fucked. can't really, yeah. you know, and not a, take there's, off. <laughs> there's actually a really annoying little note about this that I'll get to, and it'll remind me about how fucking annoying it is. Okay. Okay, so, the booster's <laughs> casing had ballooned under the stress of ignition. As a result of this, the ballooning, uh, as a result of uh, this ballooning, the metal parts of the casing bent away from each other, opening a gap through which hot gases about oh 2,760 degrees leaked. Uh, this had occurred in previous launches, but each time the primary O-ring had shifted out of its groove and formed a seal. Although the solid rocket booster was not designed to function this way, it appeared to work well enough in Morton Fire Coal. 
the little mm-hmm. contractors had changed the design specs to accommodate this process known as extrusion. Right. So while extrusion was taking place, hot gases leaked past, uh, it's called blow, blow by, apparently, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, leaked past damaging the O-rings until a seal was made. So investigations by Morton Fire Call engineers determined that the amount of damage to the O-rings was directly related to the time it took for extrusion to occur and that cold weather by causing the O-rings to harden, lengthen the time of extrusion. Ugh, so the O-rings Jesus. have, like, they've gone all hard and brittle from yeah. the temperature that they shouldn't have been fucking launching at. Because they were frozen. Exactly. Yeah. So on the morning of the disaster, the primary O-ring had become so hard due to the cold that it could not seal in time, and the temperature had dropped below the glass transition temperature of the O-rings. This is getting tech. So, so a set, no, <laughs> I, I think I get it. So essentially this hot <laughs> gas, right, is supposed to kind of... I'm going to say melt. That's probably not actually what's happening, but mm-hmm. let's just say melt and seal these O-rings. But think, because yeah. it's frozen and it's so cold temperature-wise, it can't seal them. And if they're not sealed properly, because I assume that there's only a certain amount of time that this extrusion is happening or whatever, because they're not sealed properly, it makes sense that it falls apart. Exactly. That, that, that is at least what I'm getting from it anyway. So, <laughs> Just a, a nice statement here. Neither Skylar or I really studying um degrees i mean i have a bachelor's in business skylar is getting a bachelor's in public relations. public relations good job at remembering that mate. no i know that it's public relations but what i'm what i'm trying to get at is that we are so far on the other side of the spectrum this is to not science. our field of expertise it's really not but it doesn't mean it's not interesting and important so we can like discuss it and put our two cents in and then if anyone's actually studying this they can shout at us later well because i think that these kinds of things are really big in history right and yeah. so you're looking at these articles that are written by these very technical people whatever but whatever seven billion people on the planet are not as aeronautical engineers mm. like we are registering the events that happened in the same way that most people would be exactly. and we're reading this in the same way that most people would be so no we're not experts and feel free to go and do your own research skylar will cite the the sources at the end and 100 percent go and look at it but we're bringing literally the view of everyone who witnessed this happening under their understanding of what happened that day exactly exactly That's and we're very... not gonna fucking apologize for it well said diggity dog thanks buddy all right so where were we so the temperature dropped below the glass transition temperature of the o-rings i don't know what that means above the glass transition temperature the o-rings displayed properties of elasticity and flexibility while below the glass transition temperature they become rigid and brittle oh god okay? so, so they, they, were, they weren't up. able to actually like be able to be malleable do and... their job yeah basically so the secondary o-ring was not in its uh seated position due to the metal bending there was no barrier to the gases and both O-rings were vaporized across 70 degrees, across 70 degrees of arc. Um, so we have no more O-rings. Basically. They've, they've shit themselves. Right. So aluminum, ox- and do you say aluminum or alu- aluminum? I say aluminum. See, I don't fucking even know these Americans. Aluminum just sounds weird. But anyway, that's how it's spelled. Just say aluminum. It's just because, you know, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. I don't know if it's the same thing. I think it is. Aluminium and aluminum is the same thing. They just pronounce differently. Is it spelt the same? Uh, I think it's like different if you're like Aussie or American, but I have to double check. Okay. Anyway, so aluminium oxides from the burnt solid propellant seal the damaged joint temporarily, replacing the O-ring seal before flame passed through the joint. Right. So temporarily, there was a small moment of reprieve. A small moment of um, hope. Maybe. <laughs> and Maybe. then, no. Nah. And then no. Reality hit. 
So this is actually, I um, if anyone has seen it actually on Netflix, there's there's a documentary on the Challenger called Challenger: The Last Flight, and it is mm. awesome. Is it? I highly recommend. But they actually make a is a there's a very big um, uh, there's a there's a strong focus on this plume right that comes out of the the rocket, and you can see pictures of it. Mm. Um, and it's just this tiny little hole that you can see out of one of the boosters, and it's where that break in that. I feel like I've maybe seen this picture. I think you. I think most people absolutely would if you would have seen it for sure. Right. So, so there's plumes. So beginning at about t plus thirty seven, and for twenty seven seconds, mm-hmm. the shuttle experienced a series of wind shear events that were stronger than any on on any previous flight. Um, Jesus Christ! Correct. Are you ready for this? At t plus five eight point seven eight eight. So, do you know what T plus means, right? No idea. It means five seconds after launch. That's ridiculous. So, they say T minus five, four, three, two. Giggity, giggity. Yeah, do you get it? And then, so the T, I mean, I'm totally gathering that just from my own, like, common sense, I'm going to say. But it's not that it's, no, no, no. But it's not that you don't have, but that I'm literally assuming that. So, I could be very wrong. But my assumption is that five seconds after the flight is when these things happen. So if you Mm. want, instead of T minus, but I mean, you could also keep it safe and just keep saying that, but whatever. Mm. That's what I'm gathering from it. It's five seconds after launch. You're most likely very correct. So, um, yeah, a tracking film camera captured the beginnings of a plume near the rear attached strut on the right booster. Mm -hmm. Unknown to those on Challenger, or in Houston, hot gas had had begun to leak through a growing hole in one of the right booster joints. The force of the wind shear shattered the temporary oxide seal that had taken the place of the damaged O-rings, removing the last barrier to flame passing through the joint. Had it not been for the wind shear, the fortuitous oxide seal might have held through booster burnout. So that's if that if if that the slight little condition just hadn't have been hadn't have been a thing, maybe they would have been okay. They, like it was their last okay. line of defense, but yeah, yeah. but the, yeah. After that, that's when you were like, when was that? When was there's no turning back? I think that. Yeah, I think that's when it was done. Yeah, done these. Yeah, know? and just that one little weather condition, you know, like I genuinely think like weather, and obviously these O rings, but the weather. Had but a huge surely they would have well. been able to know that the wind was stronger than any other flight that they've had. They like would, that's um, just yeah. that like weather has been a science for a long time. They would have known that, and instead of being like, "Oh, so because of that, we need to reinforce everything," they were like, "Nah, fucking chuck it up there, half ass, bruh." Exactly. Like this, it. Oh my god, that's idiot. Where this, like, that's but what even just because I, I do have an evil corporate side to me, mm-hmm. right? And I get that, <laughs> and I do. Like I just do. I know you've seen it. Most people in my life have seen it, but just not even taking into account the victims of this situation and the people who died. It's a waste of money, an immense waste of money. Those rockets would have cost literally like millions. billions of dollars, millions. right? Billions. Whatever, however much. Fucking PR, nuts. right? Complete damage to NASA and complete damage to any space program that they had previously had. Like when and this story came out, like a- it would have just completely decimated Reagan's campaign. It would have affected him politically. Like just in general, there Absolutely. are so many things that this going wrong could have affected that it's more it's more intelligent on a business side of things, right? It's not even about the PR aspect of it, but just to make sure that it goes right. Because if it goes right, you can be totally renowned for having done something super successful and having been the people who had that happen. But if it goes wrong and all this shit comes out that you ignored these contractors and you didn't pay attention to the signs and all this kind of stuff, that is absolutely detrimental to everything that you're trying to do. Oh God, yeah. So it makes absolutely no sense. It genuinely doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't, but... um. Yeah, oh, 
it's just like it's infuriating it fucking absolutely infuriates me and i don't want to say like when i'm saying that i'm not diminishing the fact that the most tragic thing that happened here obviously is the lives that were lost but when you think about it from their perspective clearly they didn't give a fuck about their lives no their priorities were so out of sorts for themselves for their own interest they didn't even have their own interests at heart in that moment like they were just fucking doing whatever they felt like just to get it up just to get it done because someone was putting pressure on them and that person who was putting pressure on them had someone putting pressure on them and it was a total chain of pressure of people being like we need to have this happen 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 but i think this this particular accident is very very unique in that they're not even i think that like when you look at other you know space incidents there's always been like maybe something wrong with you know the the machinery or something something's happened you should do apollo is it 11 or 13 or whichever one 2003 the one that happened in 2003? I don't know. The sure. one that blew up in the sky that Tom Hanks was in the film for. Oh, I'm not too sure. I think that would have been. The one coming back in on Descent that mm. exploded coming back in. Maybe. That's 2003, I think, that one. But the, I, there's actually a little note for that at the end. So that was okay. like after this after this accident, the only accident that happened after was in, the, in 2003. Okay. I can't remember what it's called, but I'll get to it at the end. Okay. But I think that this is really unique in the fact that there are so many fucking factors that could have been corrected to prevent this. Mm. You know, these O-rings, they could have been replaced. They could have fixed up this shuttle. They fucking could have put it on a different day where mm. the temperature wasn't ridiculous, where they knew that it wasn't safe to fly. You're being told by your contractors that it's not okay. These engineers are saying it's not okay. And you're pushing to do it anyway. Like, it literally... It, but it's even like, like, why the fuck are they planning on launching during winter? No. If, you're te- if temperature is such a big fucking thing... Why the middle of winter? I don't know. But like, even then, they were fucking... said they were told in late afternoon it would be fine. But they couldn't even wait till the afternoon. So it's just all ridiculous. But we're going to get back to our wee plume, right? So this plume. Our wee plume. Our, wee plume. our friend, the wee plume. The wee plume. <laughs> so within a second, the plume became well-defined and intense. Internal pressure in the right to boost it. So no longer drop. a wee plume. It's not, no longer a wee plume. It's a big lassie. It's a big un. It is a big un. So the internal pressure in the right boost began to drop because of the rapidly enlarging hole in the failed joint, you reckon? And at T plus 60.238, there was visual evidence of flame burning through the joint and impinging on the external tank. Jesus. Yes. At T plus 64.660, the plume suddenly changed shape, indicating that a leak had begun in the liquid hydrogen (laughs) tank, locating in the rear portion of the external tank. The nozzles of the main engines pivoted under computer control to compensate for the unbalanced thrust produced by the booster burn through. We love that. Your face. I just I just have nothing to say at this so, point. So, yeah. So the pressure in the shuttle's external LH2 tank began to drop at T plus 66.764, indicating the effect of the leak. So at this stage, the situation still seemed normal both to the crew and to the flight controllers. At T plus 68, the Capcom Richard O. Covey informed the crew, the crew that they were to go at throttle up. And so Commander Dick Scobie confirmed, Roger, go at throttle up. And that was last communication from the Challenger to the air-to-ground loop. That was the last thing that they were caught. Ugh. Well, that was the last communication between between the two. There is like There is one little bit. It's not funny, but I... Um, there is one thing said by I think it was Michael. Tell um, me, tell me, tell me what Michael we said. We get to that. Um, so <laughs> we're getting into the vehicle breakup. This is getting. This is when it gets a wee bit depressing. Right. Okay. So the last statement captured by the crew cabin recorder came when pilot Michael J. Smith said, "Uh oh." Yeah, you know what? Fair. 
Fair crack of the whip. Fair. Fair shake of the sauce bottle. Absolutely. Mm. So Smith may have been responding to onboard indications of main engine performance or to falling pressures in the external fuel tank. You don't really know. <laughs> Clearly um, a, a very self-controlled man to not just start fucking swearing. Man, I'd be shitting myself. I can only imagine. It, it gets into these details, but I can only, I can't. The psychological, actually, you know like you're never, you're never going to know. Nobody is ever going to you know. know. I can't actually possibly imagine. No, it's like completely out of the realms of knowing. Like, no. I mean, look, because the civilian, right? Uh, the teacher, what was her mm. name? Car- uh, what was her name? Krista McCall. Krista. She maybe uh, maybe didn't know. Would have been judging by their reactions that it wasn't good. But the people who were literally trained to be there They'd know. would have known mm, that everything had gone to shit. And yeah. even though it happened only over 75 seconds, like how fast is 75 seconds? That's a minute and 15 seconds. All of this. It's weird that when you're reading through this and, like, in my head it's going really slowly, but all of this happens so quickly. A minute and 15 seconds, right? They would have had to come to terms with the fact that they were going to die. Not Maybe not even. We'll we'll get it. It is really interesting. We can, like, kind of discuss that after. But it it does. this this is kind of where it gets really, really interesting. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. So at T plus 73.124, the rear dome of the liquid hydrogen tank failed, producing a propulsive force that ran the hydrogen tank into the LOX tank in the forward part of the ET. I don't understand all of that, but very bad you do, I assume. Yeah, something rammed into something else and probably broke five other things that weren't meant to be broken. Most likely, correct, yeah. yeah. So at the same time, the right booster rotated about the forward attached strut and struck the intertank structure. So everything's just fucking falling apart. Everything's shit. Yeah. Uh, The external tank at this point suffered a complete structural failure. The LH2 and LOX tanks rupturing, mixing and igniting, creating a fireball that enveloped the whole stack. So booster go boom. Right. Um, or shuttle go boom. I don't know. I would um, say I am going to assume booster because, because you haven't gone into the fact like, that everyone died yet. So no, but the thing is the boosters actually, when this broke apart, the boosters kept going up. So the boosters, like, I think they eventually broke apart, but they actually good. Like there's footage of this, is this shuttles, like it's falling apart, but the boosters keep going up. So people thought it was normal. Well, because you know how when you were like, look, this is all of my experience taken from watching sci-fi movies, but (laughs) once they reach a certain point in the atmosphere, they drop off the launch stuff. Yeah. Like it drops off. Yeah. But they, that's what I mean. It was only like 76, whatever. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But clearly like rockets are made, spaceship, whatever the fuck they're made to break apart to that degree. Mm. So it doesn't surprise me that it would keep going. If that makes sense, because they would be used to losing all this weight, which would propel, propel them even further. Exactly. So this is where we're going into the breakup, which is just, it, it, it gives me shivers actually thinking yeah. about it. It freaks me out. Yeah. So the breakup of the vehicle began at T plus 73.162 seconds and at an altitude of 48,000 feet, which is 15 kilometers. Um, with the external tank disintegrating and with the semi-detached right booster contributing its thrusts on an anomalous vector, Challenger veered from its correct um altitude with respect to the local airflow resulting in a load factor of up to 20 g well over its design limit of 5g it was quickly ripped apart by abnormal aerodynamic forces so the orbiter didn't actually explode as it was suggested and like it looks in footage um the force of the external tank breakup was well within its structural Mm -hmm. limits Mm -hmm. so it didn't explode it it broke apart which to me, it looks like big boom boom anyway. When you see the footage, it's really. Does it all happen so quickly? It does, yeah. It looks like an explosion, but it just, it literally just breaks apart. It's, yeah. So the two boosters, which could withstand greater aerodynamic loads, separated from the ET and continued in uncontrolled powered flight. So that's why I told you they just kept yeah. zoomy zoomy. 
the more robustly constructed crew cabin also survived the breakup of the launch vehicle. And this is really, this freaks me out. So the cabin that they were in actually stays completely intact. Mm. Um, so it was designed to survive 20 PSI while the estimated pressure it had been subjected to during orbiter breakup was only about four to five PSI. Okay. So it all stays intact. So you, you can get, we can get into it and talk about it, but I think most people assume that they were either, they were still alive and most of them are like either still alive or conscious during this. Because it was designed to withstand anything. Because ex- it's where the people are. Exactly. So, yeah. it's just, so you would think if they were con- like alive and conscious, you'd be shitting yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I can't even... Yeah, the rocket just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Yeet. It's like, now we're just in a little fucking bowl. Just exactly. Zooming through space. Well, well sky, not I suppose. For long. Yeah. So while the boosts were subsequently destroyed remotely by the range safety officer, the detached cabin continued along a ballistic trajectory... trajectory and was observed exiting the cloud of gases at T plus 75.237 seconds. So 25 seconds after the break of the vehicle, the altitude of the crew compartment peaked at a height of 65,000 feet, and that's 20 kilometres in the sky. Yeah. So that's the that's the, the breakup of the... Yeah. We're getting into... Cools. And that's the peak, so I'm going to assume that we're going to start falling now. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we're getting into, like... Causes and, and death seasons okay. are very fun. Right. So the crew cabin um, made of reinforced aluminium was a robust section of the orbiter and during vehicle breakup it detached in one piece and slowly tumbled into a ballistic arc and the forces involved at this stage were probably insufficient to cause major injury. So you can probably assume that they're still kicking it for a little bit. So at least some of the crew were alive and at least briefly conscious after the breakup um, as three of the four recovered personal aggress air packs, so PAPs, on the flight deck were found to have been activated. So, so ox- like oxygen tanks, I, I would assume. I, yeah. yeah. So these were those of Judith Resnick, mission specialist Ellison on Azuka, and pilot Michael J. Smith. The location of Smith's activation switch on the backside of his seat likely indicated that either Resnick or Onizuka activated it for him, which I think in itself is pretty fucking heroic. Because mm. they've so we're to, going to assume that the other four who didn't activate their oxygen would have maybe unconscious were maybe not yeah. doing great. Okay, no, I would assume they're unconscious. So Judith and Ellison, uh, the the girl and the and the guy, they've clearly activated theirs and then done the same for for Michael. Yeah, which is I can't even like that's pretty. Well, horrible. he's the captain, right? So yeah. he's for them. He's. The well, person I think he's, who's supposed he's, to... I didn't know if, like, Dick Scobie was the commander. Dick Scobie was the commander oh. and Michael J. Smith was the pilot. I the think. pilot? I'm, the pilot, okay. I, I think. I'm not sure. Well, in that... Either way, if he was the pilot or whatever, the pilot would be relatively integral to you survival. You want him so. to know what's up. But at yeah. that point, yeah. You have I don't know how much time. you can pilot, right? So. <laughs> so this, but this is where... This, uh, I get really annoyed at some of these little... Bitty bobs after this. So investigators found their remaining unused air supply consistent with the expected consumption during the two, um, two minute and 45 second post breakup trajectory. So I assume that means that they're like being yeeted through there. So for two minutes. So they looked at how much oxygen was used yeah. and it was synonymous to two minutes and 45 seconds of breathing. I so they were so. alive for two minutes and 45 seconds after mm-hmm. the um, rocket ship fell apart. Dude, if that were me, I would just not bother. I'd just want to pass out because, fuck, I can't even imagine. So while analysing the but record... you don't even know because your survival instincts take over. Yeah, but even then, you got to know. No, no, no. I mean, now we don't know what we would do. Oh, God, no. No, because, like, then, 
like if your survival instincts take like I know that I'm someone who like my literally my one fear is death in general mainly with my family dying or my friends dying that's my main fear but also death is a very scary thing for me and like I've overcome it a lot more than I used to be able to but I right now I'm like yeah I think it would be easier absolutely and like I would probably want to pass out but I think in that moment my want to live and the delusion because survival instinct is a is it's a biological thing. Oh god, and it's not something that you can. You think that you would somehow think that just some way some, you're, get you're out like of this. I need to do everything possible, and you're trained for five years or whatever in her case, but in for Judith, however long in, for the others Judith, that this yeah. is what you do to survive. Exactly. So it's like instinct. Yeah, for sure. So. While analysing the wreckage, investigators discovered that several electrical system switches on pilot Mike Smith's right-hand panel had been moved from their usual launch positions. So Mike Mullaney, I'm going to assume his name is, wrote that these switches were protected with never lock, with lever, lever locks sorry, that required them to be pulled outward against the spring force before they could be moved to a new position. And later tests established that neither the force of the explosion nor the impact with the ocean could have moved them, indicating that Smith made the switch changes, presumably in a futile attempt to restore electrical power to the cockpit after the crew cabin detached from the rest of the orbiter. Mm. So he's giving it a good hot go, basically. He's Yeah, exactly. Just fucking doing the best he can till the end. These people are incredible. Like, I can't, this story is just, it, it hits me right in the heart, in the feels. Um, so whether the crew members remain conscious long after the breakup is unknown and largely depends on whether the detached crew cabin maintained pressure integrity. If it didn't, the time of useful consciousness um, at that altitude is just a few seconds. The PAP supplied only unpressurized air and hence would not have helped the crew to retain unconsciousness. If, on the other hand, the cabin was not depre- like depressurized or only slowly depressurizing, they may have been conscious for the entire fall until impact. Oofed. Yeah, fuck that. So the recovery of the cabin found that the mid-deck floor had not suffered buckling or tearing. Where did it land? Oh, fuck, in the, in the weird ocean, just off um, Cape Canaveral, I'm pretty sure. Oh, right, so it was in the water. Yeah, it landed in the ocean, yeah. Right. Um, so recovery of the cabin found that the mid-deck floor, no buckling or tearing, um, as a result from a rapid decompression, thus providing some evidence that the depressurization may not have happened suddenly. So they could have been alive for that whole thing. Mm. So NASA routinely trains shuttle crews for splashdown events, but the cabin hit the ocean surface at roughly 333 kilometres an hour. Jesus. With an estimated deceleration at impact of well over 200 G. So far beyond the structural limits of the crew compartment or crew survivability levels and far greater than almost any automobile aircraft or train accident. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So the crew would have been torn from their seats and killed instantly by the extreme impact force. I suppose it's a fast way to die. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can think of it that way. But, I mean, you think about it, like, between launch, it was, like, what, 76 seconds or something? Between launch and then that happening and then you plummeting through, you don't really have much time to think about it, do you? I think it would just happen and it's over because that is incredibly fast. Yeah, two minutes, 45 seconds, and then you're dead. Mm. But, I mean, just in general, the as assuming that nothing else happened that made it a painful death for them, instant death. Oh, God, you would hope that they Not good, but... You would hope that they were unconscious. You would hope that it was an instant and fast and painless death for them i think it would have been at 333 kilometers an hour. i think so as well like, god yeah yeah so on july 28th 1986 a report was released on the deaths of the crew from the director of space and life sciences at the johnson space center joseph p Kerwin. so according to according to Kerwin's report the findings are inconclusive the impact of the crew compartment with the ocean 
service was so violent that evidence of damaging the image of that evidence of damage occurring in the seconds which followed the disintegration was masked and the final conclusions are little dot points. The cause of the death of the astronauts couldn't be positively determined. The forces to which the crew were exposed during orbital breakup were probably not sufficient to cause death or serious injury, so it's likely they could have lived through that. Yeah. And then the crew possibly but not certainly lost consciousness in the seconds following orbital breakup due to in flight loss of crew module pressure. Right. So I think it's like it's like it's that's a, a heavy debate with this. Like people are like, you know, they could have lost consciousness or they yeah, no one knows for sure because yeah. there aren't enough you know, there's not enough evidence, data and yeah. evidence to show whether yes it is entirely possible that this is what was like or blah blah blah. So during powered flight of the space shuttle crew escape was not possible. This is the annoying bit, really mm. fucks me off. Yeah. So launch escape systems were considered several times during shuttle development, but NASA's conclusion was that the shuttle's expected high reliability would preclude the need for one. <sighs> yeah. So um. that's that's that that's the point that really Fucks me off. Like, what if they could have had, like, little ejector seats? Literally. Some, like, some yeah. of they, they would have, like, if they were conscious, they some of them could have been saved. Or they could have saved one another. Or however the fuck projector seats yeah. work. You yeah. know? Like, just stuff like that. It, Someone why would should you... have asked Ronald Reagan, hey, if it, was your, uh, if it was your kid who was on that fucking shuttle, do you want them to have an escape route? No, they literally just do not have an escape route because apparently space flight is so reliable. So you safe. Don't, you don't need one. Fucking so safe. Absolutely. That's what I've always said about space travel. I safe this mode of travel. That's what I always <laughs> said. I always say that about space travel. <laughs> so, fuck's sake. That's just ridiculous though. Like, no, it's fucking... It's almost like this was a really convoluted assassination attempt. <laughs> like, honestly. Oh. They're just really, like... No disrespect. If something goes wrong, you're definitely gonna die. <laughs> no disrespect to the families and the people that lost their lives, but far. No, not at all. And I, but that's what They're I mean. Ridiculous. I don't even think it is disrespectful to them. It's like, literally, it's like they wanted them to die. Like, it's insane. Every single, every single detail that we've gone through so far is like... You could have predicted. You could have predicted this. <laughs> you could have done, done, done this. Could have done, done this. Uh, you could have at least given them fucking little ejector seats. <laughs> that would have been but, like, great. They were like banking on the fact that ejector seats are the only possible way you could escape this situation. But, but also, it's, it would be a nice little last line of defense. I Absolutely. Suppose. So we're getting into finding the crew, which is depresso and espresso. Mm. So on March seven, divers from the USS Preserver identified what might be the crew compartment on the ocean floor. The finding, along with the discovery of the remains of all seven crew members, was confirmed the next Wait, day. Wait, what was the date, sorry? Uh, March 7th. Ah, so that's two months later. Yep. Damn. Exactly. So, the finding, along with the discovery of the remains of all seven crews, was confirmed the next day on March 9th. NASA announced the finding to the press. Uh, the crew cabin was severely crushed and fragmented from the extreme impact forces. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, you reckon? <laughs> fuck. One member of the search team describes it as largely a pile of rubble with wires protruding from it. Oh, the largest intact section was the rear wall containing the two payload bay windows and the airlock. All windows in the cabin had been destroyed with only small bits of glass still attached to the frames. And then impact forces appeared to be greatest on the left side, indicating that it struck the water in a nose down left end first position. You reckon? So inside the twist, this is really um, intense. Okay, I'm so, ready. Yeah. <laughs> Trigger warning for Trigger whoever. Trigger warning for anyone that doesn't like gory. Doesn't things. like. That doesn't appreciate. That, that 
is triggered by very graphic descriptions um, of death. Yeah. Yeah. So inside the twisted debris of the crew cabin were the bodies of the astronauts, which after weeks of immersion in salt water and exposure to scavenging marine life, were in a semi-liquefied state that bore little resemblance to anything living. Jesus. Delicious. So, however, according to John Devlin, the skipper of the USS Preserver, they were not as badly mangled as you'd see in some aircraft accidents. Well, thank you, John Devlin. Who the fuck cares? What? Why is that statement even necessary? It's just... It's like, oh, but if they were in a plane crash, the bodies... <laughs> oh, <laughs> Don't even get me started, buddy. Who the fuck do- Oh, my God. I'm okay. an idiot. So, Lieutenant I hope he Kimono- gets hemorrhoids. <laughs> I hope he gets... I hope he gets Like, real bad, though. <laughs> like, can't sit down. <laughs> Giant purple butt pimples. <gasps> That's gross. So Lieutenant Commander James Simpson of the Coast Guard reported uh, finding a helmet with ears and a scalp in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Judith Resnick was the first to be removed, followed by Krista McAuliffe, with more remains retrieved over several hours. Due to the hazardous nature of the recovery operation, which, little side note, the cabin was filled with large pieces of like protruding jagged metal. Mm. Uh, the divers of uh, the navy divers protested that they would not go on with the work unless the cabin was hauled onto the ship's deck. Uh, during the recovery, I think of- that's a fair enough request. How about we not put any more crew members at risk? Yeah, fair crack in the whip. Hey? Yeah, I mean, I would do the same. Just general crew members. Yeah. Let's just try and you know, if we've learnt anything, lives first. Yeah. Yeah, lives <laughs> first. Yeah. Jesus, if we've learnt anything, me. stop eating. They people. had to protest that just even to begin with, like. Oh, my God. Let's stop putting people into unnecessarily dangerous positions. So during the recovery of the remains of the crew, Gregory Jarvis's body floated out of the shattered crew compartment and was lost to the diving team. Sorry, it wasn't Michael J. Smith. It was Gregory Jarvis, the sweet little engineer. Okay. Which, um, I really like his face. It was so cute. So he was lost to the diving team. A day later, it was seen floating on the ocean's surface. It sank as a team prepared to pull it from the water. Determined not to end the recovery operations without retrieving Jarvis, Crippen rented a fishing boat at his own expense and went searching for the body. On April 15th, near the end of the salvage operations, the Navy divers found Jarvis. His body had settled to the sea floor. That really hurts my heart. Yeah. I don't know why I hate that. So, uh, Navy pathologist... Um, I don't know why. I don't know why. I think it's pretty, it's pretty self-explanatory really as to why you hate that. It hurts me. Um, so Navy pathologists performed autopsies in the crew members were due to the poor conditions of the bodies. The exact cause of death could not be determined for any of them. The crew autopsies. took... Autopsies. What a fucking... What a... Ugh. Maybe it's just me, okay? Mm. But does that not seem like a useless exercise at I this point? I don't know why they bother. They've been... Like, yeah, try, I suppose, but it's try than not to. But two months underwater, 300 whatever the fuck coming towards the surface, crushed, mangled. kilometers an hour. Like, skulls and helmets. Yeah, look, it's not great. So the crew transfer took place on April 29th, 1986. <laughs> like, sorry, but, like, through an autopsy, right? Like, nobody poisoned someone. <laughs> like, the only <laughs> thing you're going to find <laughs> is broken bones that aren't going to tell you anything. Yeah, it's... Br- Cause oh, of yeah. death. Impact. Cause of death. death. Like, like the water they... just would have destroyed any evidence of whatever happened if they did die before and also impact, little right? Nibblers. Yeah, but if if they did die before impact, how would you? There's no know? way that they would know no. bef- after impact and after sitting in the water for two months. Like it's just, I mean, look, I'm not in any way, shape, or form an mortician. No coroner, coroner, coroner. Jesus, a coroner. <laughs> 
I'm not a coroner. I don't study biology, but that just seems ridiculous. Ridiculous. Exactly. So uh, the crew transfer took place on April 29th, 1986, three months and one day after the accident. Jesus. Yep. So we're just going to do a quick little thing. The continuation of the of the shuttle program, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep this fucking train rolling. <laughs> if you well, don't learn from your mistakes and move forward. Well, we really bombed point, that know? one, didn't if we? If we didn't keep going, they would have died in vain. I bet you fucking Ronald Reagan said something like that, <laughs> most, fucking asshole. Most... <laughs> It's probably like, do we want them to die for nothing? Send another one up. Let's see what happens. So you're not a fan of the wrong, hey? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, I will do an episode on that fucking C word, which I never say, but he is. Skylar, shout it for me. Can't. He? Oh, my God. You just don't say that word, do you? If I could sever his testicles, feed them to his child. Oh. Whilst (laughs) they stared deeply at each other. And then murdered him <laughs> in the most torturous way possible, I would have. I think he's, like, pretty dead already anyway. So Yeah, that's what I'm saying, if I could. Okay. Anyway, you know? we're going to get on to the, um, to the, because, you know, you live and you learn. And <laughs> when things like this happen, you got to keep on trucking. All right. <laughs> so after the accident. You sound like Ronald Reagan. <laughs> you sound like the imagined version of Ronald Reagan that Ronald I've, Reagan. I've come up. Exactly. <laughs> Careful. I'm joking. Um, so after the accident, NASA's space shuttle fleet was grounded for almost three years while the investigation, hearings, engineering, redesign of the uh, SRBs and other behind-the-scenes technical and management reviews, changes and preparations were taking place. So three years of no yeeting into sky, okay? Um, at 11.37... So at 11.37... people died. Yeah. in the sky. Oh, you got to be able to have some kind of a giggle. It's dark humor. It is. It is. It's fine. It's, it's on brand for us, It I is suppose. on brand. So, at 11.37 <laughs> on September 29th, 1988, Space Shuttle Discovery lifted off with a crew of five all-veteran astronauts from Kennedy Space Center. Its crew included Richard Okovey, who had given the last status call out to Challenger before its breakup. You know, remember Challenger go out throttle up? That guy. Um, so... <laughs> So, oh, yeah. <laughs> get up there, mate. So the shuttle carried a tracking and data relay satellite, uh, which is a TDRSC, um, uh, which replaced the TDRSB, the satellite that was launched <laughs> and lost on Challenger. Yeah, that was the problem. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> me. So, replace the satellite. Everything replace will be fine. the satellite. Fuck's sake. So the return to flight launch of Discovery also represented a test of the redesigned bo- of the redesigned boosters, a shift to a more conservative stance on safety and a chance to restore national pride in the American space program, especially crewed space flight. Yeah, the fucking American boys. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. So the mission STS-26 was a success and a regular schedule of STS flights followed, continuing without extended interruption until the 2003 Columbia disaster. So it was Columbia in 2003. I'm pretty sure they all died on re-entry and it just exploded. This video footage it's really fucked. No, I, th- I reckon it's a different story then. Don't think. I mean, hey, wouldn't put a pass to Hollywood, but I don't think... Wait, do you mean Columbia is in it was... In Colombia? No, Colombia is the shuttle's name. Okay. It was in Colombia. I don't think Tom Hanks is playing in Colombia. <laughs> oh my god, of course he is. So Barbara Morgan, the backup for McAuliffe, um, she was one of the um, one of the teachers on the Teacher in Space program, and hmm. she was her second. So if 
Krista couldn't make it, um, Barbara Morgan would replace her. Barbara Luckily, was still Barbara was still keen. Barbara's fucking blessing her. She life. was fro- wait, wait, did she go up in the so that here's the thing. So the backup for McAuliffe, who uh, trained with her in the Teacher in Space Crow program and was at KSC um, watching her launch on January 28th, 1986, she flew on STS-118 as a mission specialist in August of 2007. So she got to go up in space uh, quite a while after her friend did. So Krista died in 86. And she was still fucking frothing she for it. She was still frothing it. And that, my friends, is the, um, the Challenger space shuttle disaster. And we'll just quickly do some refies. Um, so the crew members who died in Challenger disaster, uh, space shuttle Challenger disaster, wiki Thiokol, <laughs> uh, Morton Thiokol, wiki. Thank you for listening. That's it. You only had two sources. No, I had three. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> nation. You don't have to look very far to get solid stuff. Mate. I mean, yeah, because that was like a very big publicized. Thing. The exactly. topic that I was going to do Almost for tonight... all, all references were the exact same. Yeah, fair. So, <laughs> to, what I was going to do tonight, if you had fucked it and not done one, was um, the Hoya Bariu forest in Romania, which is like the most haunted forest in the world because I thought spooky season. Ooh. Right? So, I was going to do that. Well, but thank you fuck for... me, there's nothing. What? Nothing about it. I spent so long. And it felt also, good. Also, that's not something was... that we're going to do because there's nothing on it. So you didn't spoil one for me? No, no, no. That's like I've, I've finished it now. It wouldn't be a long one. Like maybe it would be one if we both did one, then we have half each and it ends up being an hour total. But yeah, that was a short one. But it was essentially the most haunted forest in in Romania. And it's in Transylvania as well. That's so, creepy. Yeah. Because Transylvania so, is, um, is a region of Romania. Isn't that where all the vampires are? Basically. So Maybe we'd just like in case into, one day if I do it. Then. We'd like to jump into our final segment, who we would like to bang okay, with. Maybe we, should have, maybe we should have a slightly smoother transition nah. into uh, really, all these- I would just say, I would like to say that I think that that's fucked up. I think, obviously, I think that it's really sad and that so many talent, and obviously it's not, their lives are not worth more than anyone else's, but they were very talented Shit people. Go. And they were wronged by their government. They were wronged by the system that they trusted. They were wronged by the company that they worked for. And a lot of people should feel responsible and guilty for their deaths. Morton Thiokol. That's all I have to say. And so with that, Skylar, would you like to proceed? Well, I kind of almost did, but you really had to... Dropped had, me phone. <laughs> you had to get DNM on me. Um, yes, so who would you like to bang? You go first. Don't have one yet. Gagado. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you see she's going to play Cleopatra in the remake? Have you seen the original? No. Fucking four hours long. Don't watch it. Liz Taylor and Liz Taylor and um, old mate, her husband of twice, Richard. Richard. You know how she was married like eight times, and, and one of them she married twice. Yeah, yeah, I know that guy. He was very pretty. Yeah, no, I think I have seen that. Though. I fucking would have married him twice, three okay. times maybe. So is that who you're talking about? Is that, is that your Him? No. Is that what you're saying? You need to keep fucking around so I can think of someone. Um, well, yeah, Gal Gadot is mine. Wonder Woman, big Amazonian goddess. I'm fucking down. Yeah. She's ridiculously good looking. To be honest, I'm, you know, so closer to the straight on the spectrum, but if she asked, I would <laughs> say no. <laughs> Gal Gadot came up to me and asked, asked if I like to sit on her face, I would not decline. Not at all. Who would? Not at all. No one. 
Um, okay. That's fine. Oh. If you could hurry up. Who have I been frothing recently? There's definitely been someone. Uh, oh, Robert, Robert Pattinson. Really? Dude. Did I like him? He well? is weird as fuck. I don't know if you've been keeping up with him recently, but everything in the news about him is just how strange he is. He's weird as in he's incredibly chaotic. And like when you honestly, we will look at some stuff later so tonight. It's kind of like but you? it's fucking amazing. He has just lost it. Like and not lost it in like a Shia LaBeouf way where he's like a danger to people around him. But he's just lost it as in he <laughs> doesn't a give a fuck anymore. He doesn't give a fuck. And he's kind of like Daniel Radcliffe where after Twilight and after his commercial success he started going into weird obscure indie movies oh yeah started doing like more like you know those kinds of strange yes. plots and and choosing specific projects did you see that movie with him in it and he literally just sits in a limo doing shit all day and no. he like fucks his cheek in his limo no it's weird with Daniel radcliffe or with robert no, pattinson, robert pattinson. no it didn't fucking weird yeah well anyway. i can imagine it sounds boring to be honest it is but, boring get rid yeah. of it well <laughs> I shall. Anyway, so there's. A, I know that there was like a interview that went viral with him a month or so ago, and he um, was just like he. I think a, he pulled a prank on a fan. Anyway, he's just like fucking. He's insane, and he's he is attractive. Just you know, just as, even though he was attractive to all of us when we were twelve, he he wasn't attractive to me because I just didn't wasn't into Twilight. Read it, thought it was a shit book. Sorry, Stephanie Meyer, and your Mormon fucking ways, but I'm not interested. Is she Mormon. Dude, Twilight is literally like Mormon propaganda. I did not know that. Yeah, How it's all in the subtext. I'll, I'll explain it to you at some point. Please but do. Yeah, it's, she's, she's very Mormon. I think it's Mormon. If it's a different religion, either way, it's a certain religion. And it's like from those from that religion, Twilight like follows a lot of... It's, it's funny. Anyway, um, he is attractive and his chaotic energy and he's just in general not giving a fuck and people being like, he's fucking lost it, is very attractive to me. So That's because you have chaotic energy. All Absolutely. right, so we're going to sum that up with Robert Pattinson and Gal Gadot. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening. Sorry, this one was a little bit of a depresso espresso, but we'll make sure next week is a bit lighthearted. It'll either be one of us or both of us. You'll we'll never know. Out. Yeah. So <laughs> have a fucking great... Uh, well, I suppose you will know next week. I don't know why I said it. You'll never know. Have a wonderful <laughs> evening, and I hope that you keep it fucking weird, buddy. Keep it fresh, guys. Hell yeah. Delicious. I love you. Bye. Bye.